Fold your hands, close your eyes, let's pray, let's go. Thank you very much for coming along. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for coming back. You never quite know if they will or not. Take a note. Maybe they come back, maybe they don't. You never quite know. So I've been trying to convince you there's only one story in Scripture. That's the story of the resurrection. And then what we'll do then is chase how a person could be resurrected. Now this boy's name is... What's your name? Right there, Lazarus. What are you, crazy? It's right here, Lazarus, which of course is the name of the resurrection, right? So, um, there's, when you're dead as a doornail, we did that, necros, and then we did Romans uh, chapter six. And if you follow Romans chapter six, you end up inside the church. You remember how this works? And the most important thing, the very most important thing, is that you remember that this is a passive verb. Don't you know you who were baptized? So Jesus, if anybody says to you who baptized, you say Jesus did. And then that's a solid answer. It can't be wobbled or shaken. So this is your entire life. Your entire life is the life of resurrection. And I've tried to convince you then that this boundary uh, between, you know, heaven and earth, between the church and the world, between grace and sin, between resurrection and death, can be bounded in a whole bunch of different ways. We started with the ten words, but if everything goes well, you'll also see that this boundary is also the creed, or uh, holy baptism, or the holy supper, right, or the Lord's Prayer. This is um, the boundary. Uh, and out here, sin, death, nothing good. And inside, death and resurrection, everything good. And then the question is, why would anybody want to live out here? Because you used to live out there. That's where we started, Ephesians 2. And your hoodlum friends still live out there. And uh, you could find people all over the place who live out here, uh, but that's a dangerous place to live. Uh, better then is to be in Christ. And in Christ becomes, in the New Testament, code word for the church, for Christians. You remember this was into, this was a preposition of motion, and then in Christ, a preposition of location. Don't you know you're the body of Christ? Don't you know you're the church? Don't you know you're alive? Don't you know you're Christians, right? So the only story is resurrection. And what we want to try to do is figure out what it means to be a living child of God. And um, the first thing we did was sort of have a look after baptism at the Ten Commandments, because those are your friends. Pause. Can somebody look up Romans 12.1? This is for later. Just one person, Romans 12.1. Can somebody look that up? Andrew, you got it? I need somebody to look up 1 Thessalonians 4.1. You got that, young fella? You're good with a Bible. I know you are. And if somebody also then could actually uh, look up, um, same, whoever got Romans. That was you, Andrew, right? Were you the Romans guy? Well, I'm going to need verse 9 as well. And then if somebody can find 1 Thessalonians, there's extra credit for finding the Thessalonians. Even the Thessalonians couldn't find Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 
And nine, I'm going to need nine from you. First Thessalonians 5. He's got it. First Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20. Don't say it yet, though. Just hold on to it. And people need warning this early in the morning to uh, actually look something up. So this beautiful notion that we can't fix ourselves, but we can be fixed. We can't make ourselves alive, but we can be made alive. We can't decide for Christ, but Christ can decide for us. This wonderful notion that we're nothing, nothing but given to. And then Jesus says things like, stay put, stay where I put you, abide in me, I'll abide in you. And then I had this um, little notion that, now I used an equal sign, which is a little bit mathematical for the Lord. Holiness goes with love, goes with obedience. And I told you, uh, whenever I get the chance to preach at the seminary, I always talk about obedience because I know it makes the ears spin on their heads when I say that that's a gospel word. So holiness goes with love, goes with obedience, goes with joy. It might go with happiness, but one can't be sure about that. And it's also super hard, but then as Elizabeth Scalia said last week, the hard things are the good things. Ah, so that would go with good. And then you homeschoolers, that would also go with beauty. And I guess it would go with truth as well, since Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You see how beautiful all this is? All this works together. Now, Romans, who's got the Romans text? Andrew, read me. Nice, firm voice, like you believe it, like you mean it, like Jesus loves you, like he's coming at Christmas time in a little manger, surrounded by angels. Give me like, there's, Romans 12 is fabulous, but give me kind of verse 1 and verse 9, if you can. If you can do that, can you kind of make them fit together? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living Stop right there. So then mercy would be uh, the thing that did it to you. That's good news. By the mercies that you could be a living sacrifice. Huh. Because sacrifices are usually dead. But then after Jesus dies, you don't need those anymore. You could be a living sacrifice. Verse 9 goes like what? Let love be genuine. Nice. what is evil, hold fast what is good. So there you go. And there's the whole Christian life in one sentence. Touch. Don't touch evil. That would be out here. Touch good. That's the whole Christian life in a sentence. And there it was. In, now, if Thessalonians has anything to say about it, it'll say the same right thing, right? Give it to me. Give it both to me. If we find a flaw in the Bible, we'll refer it down to St. Louis or Fort Wayne. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk. Received, passive verb. Walking is for living people. And to please God. And to please God, your beloved. We did that the first week. He looks at you and says, this is my beloved son, Alvaro. Go ahead. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then the next verse I gave you? Yeah. More, more, more and more. So the gospel is always more. That was what was there. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. More happiness, more joy, more obedience, more love, more, more. Um, I think it was verse 9. I think it was too, but if you want to make something up, go yeah, ahead. I'm a flexible kind of guy. Was it verse 9? Thank you so much. Now concerning brotherly love, 
Okay. Now, just concerning love, if you need to know what love is, okay, go ahead. Uh, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Yeah, you got this in kindergarten. For you have been taught yeah. by God yeah. to love one another. Good, and then, so love goes with, and then there was somebody else had something from 1 Thessalonians 5, is that true, 19 and 20? Yeah, off a phone, you little hipster. All right, go ahead. Read it to me. Do not quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. So we, some, at some point, we've got to make room for the Holy Spirit in here. Go ahead. Do not despise prophecies. Okay, don't despise prophecies. Prophets, scriptures, psalms. Keep going. But test of Test. Now, with this is where, it's just the point we're at today, to give things a bit of a test. Good. Hold fast what is good. There you go. Love means touch good and... Cling to good, clutch good, drop evil. That's all you need to know. Now, what's important is we're going to find the line here. And um, that comes with the ten words. Now, I gave you, one of the sheets says, uh, I gave you a bunch of different descriptions. This is the most contested thing in the Missouri Senate right now. Everybody's got their... Um, Nickers in a knot over this, so we'll see if we can do, but nobody seems to know what they're talking about, so we'll see if we can do a little bit of work here. Uh, the Ten Commandments, that I really tried to convince you uh, was, of, is that the Holy, that the Ten Commandments are holy and good, beautiful and wonderful, what God says in the mirror. Now, if you won't believe me, Maybe you'll believe a guy like Scare. That would be the one with the red arrow. So you've got lots of things going on today. A lot of them have a lot to say. But if you look at the red arrow part, on the side, I've sort of summed up the Ten Commandments for you as don't have any other gods and don't have any enemies. There you go. We can talk about that in a bit. But the hardest commandment to keep is the one to love your enemies. Now see, and immediately, see, remember I, uh, the, uh, the, the senior junior pastor parsed the Hebrew for us last week, uh, not as commandment at all, but as debar, and so as word, and very closely aligned with spirit in Hebrew. The hardest word to keep is this one, love your enemies. But this isn't a commandment, good job. It's a description of God. So I said to you, the Ten Commandments is what God sees when he wakes up in the morning and he looks in the mirror. He loves his enemies because they are his enemies. Which means a couple of things. If you have any enemies, you should love them, since you want to be in the image of God. And once you love them, they're not your enemies. Now, if that sounds odd for, to you, then you have another God. So, God loves you and God doesn't have any enemies. You say to God, I love you and I don't have any enemies. Suddenly the Sermon on the Mount makes much more sense. Turn the other cheek, pray for those who hurt you. Do good to those who hate you, right? This is what the cross is all about. So, um, we'll just leave that there for a second. But, I give you Romans 5. Eight, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, he died for us. So Jesus died 
not because of his enemies, but for his enemies. Didn't need to die, but he wanted to. And then for something for you to remember, tuck away for later, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So sometimes Christians will say to me, somebody will come in and say, I feel so condemned by God. And of course, that's not true. God doesn't condemn his children because condemnation goes with destruction. Accusation, really valuable. We'll talk about this in a little bit because then we can do better. So now we're at the point of testing. Every year at the Grand Canyon, tourists fall off the edge. You know, there's a big sign, if you've ever been there, that says, um, don't cross this line. And then what always happens? There's always somebody who looks at the sign. Now, just let me ask you initially, the sign, don't go over here. This is, goes with don't slam your thumb in the car door and don't touch the hot stove. Don't walk on broken glass, right? So every year, when somebody sees the sign, don't go any farther, law or gospel. Don't go any farther. Don't slam your thumb. Don't slam your thumb in the door. Don't touch the hot stove. It would be best for you not to walk on the broken glass. Law or gospel? Yes, because it helps you and it loves you and it doesn't judge you. But every year, somebody steps over and then just to get a really good selfie, keeps going. And then they keep going and then they fall into the Grand Canyon. You can look it up in the paper. And suddenly, that beautiful sign that said, don't do that, now becomes a sign that said, I told you not to do that. Law or gospel? Law. Because it judges you for being a dummy. And this would solve tons and tons of troubles, people's, dis, people's, dis, uh, people's um, um, troubles with the law and gospel, if they would just understand this simple thing that I gave you last week, that every word can work two ways. Now, you can get ready. I gave you one with red markings and one with the big letters that say everything works two ways. One from Luther and the Catechism, one from the Small Cult Articles. It's here if you're interested, and I can show you this in a bit. Uh, but in fact, I'll show you right now. Look at the one that looks, the very small print, and this is from the end of the Ten Commandments. But first, let me remind you of some examples. It's almost the end of the church year. At the end of the church year, there's the art where Jesus comes down from heaven. He's got a sword in one hand and a little lily in the other. If you'll have him as your Lord and Savior, he gives you the flower and off you go to heaven. If not, he has a sword. Same Jesus, law and gospel. Or the Holy Supper. You come to the Holy Supper, it's the best possible thing for you, the greatest gospel. Jesus touches you and forgives all your sins. But then there's the warning, we'll look at this later, from Paul where he says, if you don't know what you're doing, that can kind of build up, work against you so hard that it can kill you. So even the Holy Supper can work as law and gospel, or I'll fuzzy this up so you won't know exactly where it comes from, and I do appreciate printed handwriting. Thank you very much. I have a friend who boasts in his sin, right? And in this case, it's a particular sexual sin, but it could be um, somebody who's stealing from work or doesn't pay their taxes or has a mistress or uh, takes God's name in vain quite casually, or even posts, oh my God, on Facebook, please don't do that unless you finish with a prayer from the church. 
I have a friend who's caught in a sin but still praises God, embraces the sin and embraces God. Is that repentance or is it safe to assume it's a bit of a lie? This is a very sophisticated question. I assume the pride of the sin seriously contradicts the pride of the confession. This is a fabulous question because it's all of us. Because, you know, you have a lot of sins, but I like my sins. I keep them around, feed them twice a day, and let them sleep in the crate at night so they don't go out and run around and disturb my sleep. <laughs> Augustine once said, the only people who think the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is figurative, are the people who are committing adultery. Perfect. Now, in this particular question, it's very, uh, part of the reason it's such a good question is it's so real. You have a friend who boasts in a sexual sin, you have a friend who boasts in being drunk all the time, you have a friend who steals from work and tells you about it, or pick something. It's one thing to be quite sorry about your sin and maybe not even able to control it on, on, this, on this day at 9.30 in the morning on a Saturday. It's one thing. It's quite another thing to boast in the sin, it's quite another thing to nourish it. It's terribly, you're, when you're nourishing a sin, you're teetering here. Now, can I tell you which side of the teeter you're on? I actually can't. Only the Lord judges those things. But for your friend, um, you might softly say he's in danger. You might warn him that if he takes one more step back, he could be over the edge. Uh, now, just a, just a small thing about law and gospel. One of the things that people often mistake is they mistake the law with a lot. You just keep going. And being really loud, because after all, that will make people feel horrible. The law does its work in the softest way. That will kill you. Pure law and plenty. And as Walter says in Law and Gospel, a text that, you know, is around for people who want to read it, you only use the law until it pinches. It's very careful. It's a sharp instrument. Very dangerous. You be very careful with it. And he says the rookie mistake in young pastors, he says two things. One is they preach to their congregations as if they're sinners and they've never heard of Jesus. So they load it on. He said another thing they do is they think they have to give a lot of gospel uh, or a lot of law and... Um, uh, the same amount of law and gospel. So today, I've got a collar on because Gunter's funeral is at 11. Now, there'll be, you need very little law at a funeral for a Christian because you already have a dead body. Plenty of law lying right there. Right, so be very careful. Krista will come, she's dear, we love her, the family. Beautiful people, right? What they, uh, as Paul says, sin abounds, law, grace abounds all the more. It's as if the first word is two plus two plus two plus two, and the other word is two times two times two times two. So sin springs up, that's true for all of us, but the gospel floods the landscape. Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's always, as Nagel once said to me, Jesus forgives more sins than you've got. So, nevertheless, last week we saw in 2 Corinthians where Paul said, you need to examine yourselves, test yourselves, to make sure you're here and not here. This is really bad for you.
And then you see the Ten Commandments don't have other gods and don't have enemies or don't hate God and don't hate anybody else is a very reliable thing. Now, if you take the one, um, just this is for you who are more theologically inclined and want to test everything. This part that says red, every word works two ways. This is just it's so, so important. Another way I've said this is there's no law and gospel in Eden. Because there's nothing to condemn. There's only love. There's only God who says, tend and keep the garden. It's all yours. Be fruitful and multiply. I'll see you tomorrow. We'll walk through the leaves in the cool of the day. Every word works two ways. Now go on the left where the first red is, where it says threat and promise, terrify and lure. So threat and terrify is the way of the law, and promise and lure is the way of the gospel. Look, same word. This is the conclusion to the Ten Commandments. As we said before, these words contain both a threat and a promise both law and gospel. Not only to terrify and warn us, get back on the right side of the fence, you're about to fall into the Grand Canyon. Not only to terrify and warn us, which is really, really important. Not only to terrify and warn us, but also to attract and allure us. I love you, you're my, child. You're my children, the Egyptians have been horrible to you. Come with me, we'll go to a promised land. I'll be your God, I'll serve you, I'll listen to you. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Be happy with what you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be faithful to your wife. Take good care of your kids. It's gonna be fabulous. That allured them so they went through the Red Sea and the Jordan River and eventually ended up there. Although they did show some inattention on the way. And so you can, um, you can sort of do this a bit more if you like, but I, I gave you some punish and bless, law and gospel, right? Wrath and grace, harm and good. So these words, one of the things, and this is, a, this is another thing that's so difficult, is that people begin to resent the law. So take the one that's yellow like this. Because what I'm really trying to do is make the Ten Commandments your friend. You don't have the yellow one. How can that be? Savannah, save me. You're the nicest woman. Thank you. I have to say, by reflex, it's coming to you. I, by, by reflex, I almost always describe the Ten Commandments by what they do for you or to you, by reflex. But I should actually say, because I've noticed in conversations that people don't say this, you know, what the Ten Commandments are. Horace Hummel, who used to be the, the chief Old Testament man was a bit of a genius, a John Hopkins, uh, PhD in Old Testament, and taught in a lot of bunch of places, was kind of eccentric, and you know, dug around in Israel. And I was on the Sea by Call in Siberia, the first time I went to Siberia for mission work. It was Horace Hummel in his late 70s, you know. And I'd, on the Lake Baikal, which is this beautiful large, it has something like 20% of the world's fresh water in one place. It's just amazing. It has its own microclimates. I was moaning to him about the church. He just starts laughing to me. He pats me on the head and says, you should read some church history. Because church history is filled with the troubles. Anyway, I tried to give you, you know, an off the top of my head definition of the law. Now, at seminary in the old days, back before we weren't as bright as Pastor Witt, but they used one of the questions for a 
you have a final interview to see if you're fit to go. One of the favorite questions that was asked was, sum the law and gospel in a single word. Ready? Sum the law and gospel in a single word. And then you have professors, some of whom don't like you, staring at you like this. <laughs> sum the law and gospel in a single word. Anybody got it? Ah, genius. Love. Love keeps the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love, perfect love, divine love is the sum of the law and the gospel. So, Hummel used to say, the law is what God demands, and the gospel is God meeting his own demand in Christ. Beautiful stuff. But I've tried to absorb um, what I'm hearing, so try this. There's a big argument about whether people love or hate the law. It's a crazy old thing, because to hate the law is to hate God. And to call somebody a law hater is to call him a heretic. People should be careful about that, you who are listening in. You remember Abba Agathon, they came to him, and they said to him, ah, he's, they said, we, they came to insult him. They said, ah, you're a thief. He said, I am a thief. I lust for other people's things in my heart. You're a liar, he said. Uh, he said, I, I am, I lie all the time. This is Abba Agathon now, top end um, desert father. And then they said to him, you're a heretic. And he said, I'm not a heretic. To be a heretic is to hate our Lord. People should be a bit more careful about tossing that around. They'll find themselves under the Lord's judgment. The law is holy words. I know they're holy because they come from God's heart. And they demand holiness. Leviticus. Be ye holy as I am holy. God's holy. You be holy. That is devastating. And I've sort of given you a range of devastating words here. You know, demands, weighs, calculates, evaluates, compares, accuses, judges, and condemns. Now you can add a dozen more to it, or two dozen if you like. But if you ever feel this way, you know that you're under the law. Even, you know, remember when Paul says, don't compare yourself to other people. It's not good for you. Don't put yourself under the law. You shouldn't compare yourself. You, you have sisters? Don't compare yourself to your sister. You're unique. There's one like you. Your father? Don't compare yourself to your father. You're your own person. Your friends? The rich guy next door? We talked about this under envy last week, where your best friend can, you know, get into an Ivy League and win the lottery and marry the homecoming queen, and you're still happy for him and still his best friend. That would be anti-envy. So, uh, the law is a holy thing, it's holy because it comes from God, and it demands that you be holy. And that demand is crushing. And if you've ever had, you know, occasionally I get people who have had a devastating sort of judgment from a father or a mother that ends something like, you're no son of mine. About the most devastating thing a man can say to his son. You're dead to me, you're no longer my daughter. Ultimate judgment, condemnation. When we come back, we'll read, when we come back, and remember you're not coming next week, but when we come back, we'll read the story of the Good Samaritan. Really the only story you need, if you only had the Good Samaritan, you'd have ever, I'm a Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, whose father stands right here with his little binoculars and scans the landscape every day for his son, hoping he'll come back. That's the only story in scripture. That's a story of resurrection.
If you feel yourself under the demand of the law, if you've examined yourself and said to yourself, um, I lie and I always wish I had things that belonged to other people and my prayers, the very first line in private confession, second line, my worship and prayers have faltered. You feel the judgment of that, the accusation of that. There's hope for you then because the same, very same holy words bestow holiness. So you see, this is the difference. The demand is, you should rise up. And of course, the, unless God is saying that, you can't rise up, you can't fix yourself. The worst thing you can do when you go to the hospital and see somebody is say to them, if you had a bit more faith, you could get better. This is maybe the dumbest thing ever said in the hospital. Next to, sorry, we cut off the wrong leg. So, um, <laughs> you know. Anyway, demanding that somebody do better is beyond us, frustrates us, and in the end, that's a loser's game. But bestowing it upon them, we'll read this, where the father doesn't even let the son finish his speech, wraps his arms around him and loves him. Ah. He bestows holiness on his son, as Jesus bestowed holiness on you in your baptism or will bestow holiness on you in absolution tomorrow, will deliver holiness to you at the Holy Supper tomorrow. That's the gospel. And it goes with delivering and touching, so the gospel is touch. We'll talk about the sacramental touch. It's a gift that blesses. It resurrects. It hallows, same word as forgives. Makes you holy, righteous, enlivens you, encourages you, and is always more than you need. That's the way of the gospel. And your whole life is made up by trying to sort those out, which one you need and what time. Technical language for that is the proper distinction of long gospel. Or a pastor's job is not to fix people. There's a bit of a virus in the church right now among pastors who think their job is to fix people. They should get a job at an auto body shop. They fix things at an auto body shop. In the church, we forgive people law and gospel right. So a pastor's job is not to fix, but to shepherd, to bump and nudge, to seek and find, to speak and bless. Ask your senior junior pastor, he knows all about this. He holds that over me a bit because he got to be a junior pastor a couple of weeks earlier than I did. I'm trying not to envy him under the Ten Commandments. <laughs> He's a nice boy. <laughs> Please discuss the fifth commandment. This is very nice that you send me these things. Please discuss the fifth commandment, fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, with regard to the end of life. How much do we do before we don't? How much do we do before we um, uh, let God have his way? And how does this fit with assisted suicide? This is, again, a very nice question, very clever. So it's case by case under this rubric. We prolong life. We don't prolong death. So there you go. You can figure it out in six words. We prolong life. We don't prolong death. That's how you figure out whether or not there's a plug to be pulled, whether there's another medication to be given. I mean, doctors can keep you alive for months, years, 
with the right amount of tubes and stimulation. And, but the basic thing is, now we, we prolong life, but we don't prolong death. We don't, we don't keep people alive just to suffer. Because behind that is the notion that death is your end rather than your friend, your, your enemy rather than your friend. Death is your friend. So with Gunther, we will try to have a happy day for Gunther today. As Gunther himself is having a fabulous day. Death is a doorway. Death is a threshold. Death is a friend. And if you don't die, you never get to the next place that's more wonderful than this. It's a bit, saying, a bit hard saying goodbye to all your friends, but we don't think about death as a thing to be avoided at all costs. You count the costs, as Jesus says. Then uh, with assisted suicide, that's a fairly easy answer. It's stealing, and that's one of the commandments. The real problem is you're stealing from God. You're stealing another person's life or even your own. Life belongs to God, it doesn't belong to you. Should you um, do yourself in or help somebody else do themselves in, you're stealing God's honor and stealing God's child. Don't be a thief. So, now you see how, you know, it just takes a little bit of, you could all do this yourselves and should do this yourselves. This is what it means by test everything. You know how you, you can figure this out. You know plenty. You could, I mean, you could go to seminary on the first four weeks of this. You know, if you can figure out that you're nothing but given to you, that you're put into the church by Jesus himself, that you're safeguarded by the gifts that he gives, that you're meant to live here and not there, that you're in Christ, yeah, you can sort it out. And when you don't, go see Pastor Vitt. He's a very nice young boy. Now, another question. This is, this is beautiful. Basically boils down to, why should we do more than the bare minimum? Once I get myself saved, can't I go do anything I want? Another way of saying that is, couldn't I build a little mud hut right here instead of always being in the temple over here? Eat cold food, never have a fire, never wash my clothes. Never, I mean, we have this, I have a friend, atheist friend, from, from forever, grew up with him, who says to me, you're in the fire insurance business. You sell insurance, that's what you do, fire insurance. Which makes me chuckle a bit, and then I try to law and gospel him, but no luck so far. So, uh, let's see, his, what's his mistake? His mistake is that being a Christian equals staying out of hell. Crazy? Is that what Jesus says to people? Hey, follow me so you can stay out of hell. But between here and there, we're going to do whatever we want. Knock yourselves out. You know, it's stupid on the face of it. You just, you just say it out loud once. You can hardly believe anybody would say it. But people say it all the time. You know, it's a great question. This is why it's such a great question. I mean, why would I move from this little hut over here? I don't know, because they have indoor plumbing and electric blankets and candlelight. And inside, there's actually a three-star Michelin restaurant. They have cable, all the channels, even Red Zone, right? I mean, if you want to live over here like a bum, I mean, I guess. But it's just dumb, D-U-M, Timmy. Come on. Is this what Jesus said? We'll do everything at the bare minimum? Or did Jesus say, I've come so you can have life and have it 
abundantly. I've told you to stay put where my gifts are so you can have a life filled with love. And when you wander out here, and this is the next thing we'll do, we'd love to have you back. That's where forgiveness is. Just be careful. What else have we got here? These are always so, you can see it's important because I had a highlighter on it. Okay, here we go, let me just see here. How much do my works influence my salvation? Haven't you ever read the Gospel of James? I'm just kind of paraphrasing here. What? I know you don't have this. This is private correspondence. You think I'm going to give you this? This is like, you write me something and I hand it out to you? What, are you crazy? No way. Now, I would sell it to you. What about good works? We'll get there later, but let me just, if everybody out here is doing evil works, because the definition of an evil work is unforgiven, Jesus had it before Clint Eastwood had it, um, evil works, and then the definition in here is, oh, there it is already, good works, and if you say to me, uh, what about good works, I would say to you, why don't you do some? This is what Jesus is doing, and after all, a Christian is somebody who sees, thinks, loves, and does, as Jesus sees and thinks and loves and does. Touch good, don't touch evil. Follow me, says Jesus. And you can't help doing good works. It's just the way things go. Do they save you? No, they don't save you. They come after you've been saved because you're so blasted happy to be living in here where they have sprinkled donuts. No sprinkled donuts out here. Not even donuts out here, okay? So, um, of course you do good works. Now, how that happens, more from one word, two ways. You got one like this? You got one that looks like this? On the right, I've given you a simple definition of law and gospel. The law has got to, the gospel is get to. What you've got to do is the law, what you get to do is the gospel. Got to, get to. A single letter to distinguish the law and the gospel. Concerning the distinction between works of the law and fruits of the spirit. Works of the law, those are the kinds that would it save me. Fruits of the spirit, whatever the spirit does through me. We believe, teach, and confess that works done according to the law are and are called works of the law Come on, get to the point. As long as they are, this is great, extorted from people. Isn't that great? This is like Jesus with a you know, little 38 and one of those um, things you wear to a Halloween party over your eyes. You know, little mask. They're extorted from people under the coercion of punishments and threat of God's wrath. Now, if you want to update this yellow sheet on the left, then you would put coercion and extortion and punishment and threat and wrath you can add to your list. It's not exhaustive. So if you're doing things because you got to, you're under the law. That's a sadness, because you can never do enough to save yourself. So then I would take this question, um, hey, how much should I do? You might as well just give up. Tramping out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored? Why would anybody run toward that? It's dumb, D-U-M. Fruits of the Spirit, however, and those must be in here because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live here, so fruits of the Spirit, 
fruits of the Spirit, or also known as good works, fruits of the Spirit are those works which the Spirit of God who dwells in the believers, we did this the very first week, remember? How did you become a temple of the Holy Spirit? He moved in at your baptism. And which the regenerated, the resurrected perform, insofar as they are reborn and do them spontaneously as if they knew no command, threat, or reward. That's very interesting. So it, you don't do it because you're threatened, but you also do it because you're rewarded. Although you will be rewarded, but you don't do it for that reason. Isn't that great? You just do it because it's what God does, because Jesus asked you, because love and obedience are synonyms. That's why you do it, because it's best for you. And we did this last week. Your sins aren't good for you. Don't do them. They're just not good for you. In this sense, the children of God live in the law and walk according to the law of God. In his epistle, St. Paul calls it the law of Christ and the law of the mind. Thus, God's children are not under the law, but under grace. So um, there you go. So anyway, this all goes back to a single thing, and it's easy to remember. It's easy to remember. Love God and serve your neighbor. Don't have other gods. Don't have any enemies. And if you need the specifics, you sort of just kind of run through the Ten Commandments as you would at private confession and say, you know, this is where I've come up short. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I know it's not good for me. If I tithe 10% of my income as God commands, that's a bit of a law-minded question. Should I record it on my taxes as 10% for the big guy? This is why I don't let you put anonymous questions up here, because you say, yes, that's a true question. Yes, my friend, John. I don't think you wrote this, did you? No. Okay, because... Although I do. Do you know the expression, hell to pay? <laughs> anyway, go ahead. What can I, I do for you? Yes. Uh, so in my Christian thought class yesterday, we brought up the Protestant sacraments of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. I can't believe you swore at me. You know, Lutherans aren't Protestant, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, this is just what I've been doing. I know, this is, we're all the victims of our elders. Okay. <laughs> but I'm curious, how does confession play a role in our Christian life? Like, is it a sacrament, something that we're called to do by God? Or is it something that we just, it's a practice, it's something we want to do it, but it's not like a work that, or not something that like you're explicitly called to do, like baptism. That should be the final exam question for this whole thing. My professor asked, wanted me to ask it, so... Oh. <laughs> Does he want to join here? Uh, maybe. Well, this is, it was so, it's such a tangled up question. I got, first, I got thrown by the fact that you called me a Protestant. Uh, Lutherans aren't Protestants. I'm just, I'm just parsing the question as I understood it. Um, Protestants are other guys. Hey. We didn't quit them, they kicked us out. And if they ask us nice, we might go back. But, you know, as you get busy, it's been, you know, four or five, six hundred years, let's go. So, um, I'm a little nervous about talking about, um, you, wrote, you asked the question so beautifully, but you spoke about it as, you didn't say ordinance, you said, what did you call them, the sacramental things, what did you call them when you asked me? I called them um, Holy Baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
I call him that too, but you called him something else just before that. It was roughly equivalent to when you say to somebody, with all due respect, and then you go ahead and insult them. There was a word before him, before holy baptism. Did you say ordinance, law, mandate, command? What word did you use? Um, I was goofing around having so much fun, I forgot. Anyway. I think I said something like, like Jesus calls us to. Well, if you'd have said that, I'd have probably kissed you on the lips by now. So um, here's the thing. Uh, yeah. Here's the thing. You want the Lutheran answer or you just want the Bible answer? What? Here you go. Uh, where did Jesus tell people to baptize people? Matthew 28. We did that the first week. Later, he's going to um, tell people to do this over and over and over again in remembrance of me with the Lord's Supper. So it's clear mandate is the nice gospel word for that. A mandate, he asks you to do something, mandatum in Latin. So it's a thing that you should do that would be good for you. Now, can you think of one of those where Jesus um, says that about forgiveness? Can you, can, can you think of one any place? Any ideas? I mean, I know in the confession that we hold on, on Sundays, it's from, it's not from the Gospels, but it's from John. Man, you are good. Old Med John, that's when John got some sense knocked into him by the time he does first John. But back before that, you remember that Jesus um, says to uh, um, the disciples, um, if you forgive, he breathes on them in the upper room. He says, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. Says, he sends them out to forgive sins. That's part of what they're doing. So anybody who stands after the apostles should be forgiving sins, right? Now, really important, we did this from the beginning. It's the same Jesus bestowed in different ways with different specificities. He tattoos you on your skin. He puts his body and blood on your tongue. You absorb him. You eat and drink him. You hear him, and he bounces around on your eardrum, and then he takes that big curly slide all the way down to your heart and splashes up with faith. Same Jesus, two or three different ways. So do we do that? Yes, in the catechism, you'll notice when we get to absolution next time around, and remember in case I didn't say this, we're not meeting next week because it's Thanksgiving, the week after. Um, it says an argument about this, how many sacraments there are. The confessions clean this up at one point and they say, it all depends how you define sacrament. Is ordination a sacrament? Depends how you define sacrament. So basically, the basic definition for Lutherans are a mandate from Jesus that forgives sins. Clearly, the absolution would apply, but sometimes people pull it out of baptism as well. So you can talk about two, you can talk about three, you can even talk about four. Um, if you tilt toward the Tiber, you'll talk about seven. It's a way to sort people out, but that comes later, the advanced class. So is it, it is a gift from God to which we say, thank you very much, I'll have some more. And it is institutionalized. Uh, in confession and absolution. So we do it every time you come, right? We forgive you. Why? Because Jesus asked me to do that. Remember tomorrow, Pastor Vitt will say, first thing, he'll dress up. So he'll erase himself, and all you'll be able to see is his mouth and his hands and his feet. His hands so he can walk towards you. His, I mean, his feet so he can walk towards you. His hands so he can mark the sign of the cross on you, remind you you're baptized. And his mouth to tell you how much Jesus loves you. That's, all. That's why he wears vestments. He erases himself, and then he's going to say, in the stead, 
which means for your good, you can look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, in the stead and by the command, which is this wasn't my idea, and called and ordained, you get a call by FedEx, right? You don't really have a call until the FedEx guy shows up, and ordained is when people do something to you like this. I think I told you when I was ordained at the moment they touched me, there's a lightning strike and all the lights went out. Think about that. Thank God, it's behind me. So you can only live through that like once in your life. In the stead by the command. That means Jesus is doing it. So the right answer, who baptized me, Jesus, who forgave my sins, Jesus, who gives me the Holy Supper, Jesus, Chrysostom. When the priest holds out his hand and says the body of Christ is not the priest, but Christ himself who gives his body to you. So as a gift, over and over again, because you got a lot of sins. I mean, you can barely make it seven days. You gotta come midweek sometimes. Guy like you, you have to come Thursday and Tuesday. Think about it, okay? Which then would run against the idea that you're living out here in a mud hut. You'd find out there's free coffee during the week too. It's all here. How are we doing, still okay? Questions about anything? What I want you to do is go home and embrace the Ten Commandments as your best friend. Now, the super advanced class. You got this? If people would pay attention to this, everything would resolve itself. Whenever we do anything merely because we have to, by compulsion, so that would be on the law side. Now add have to and compulsion on the left side. We're not acting as free sons and daughters of the kingdom. John, you're a free son of the kingdom. You're my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. If we pay taxes because we'll go to jail if we don't, we act as slaves and not as God's free children. Not as Peter and Jesus did when they paid their taxes together. The motive of Christian action is not force. Force should go on the left side under the law, but love. That goes on the right side under the gospel. The motive of Christian action is not force, but love. We live from the gospel, not from the law. From here means motivated by or um, under threat of. Christ never gets behind his friends with a sword or a whip. That's good to know. If he gets inside them with his love, a love that makes us free, free to want and achieve what God wants and plans, Therefore, Jesus goes to Gethsemane and moves toward the cross, not at the point of a sword, but moved by love of God and love of us. Willingly, all this I suffer. That's an old hymn. Love alone wins any worthwhile victory. This is why your whole life can be summed up in a single word, love. And for you Lutherans, if you love, then you have faith. But love comes first. Love alone wins any worthwhile victory. If you win from hate, you've won nothing. If you've won from force, you've won nothing, at least so far as the church is concerned. That should tell you a lot about church politics and all you guys out there on your blog scheming toward the next election. God forgive you. Love alone wins any worthwhile victory. 
And to do this, it must be willing to forego force and to suffer. Now see, that goes together. And that was where last week we had the break between joy and happiness. I had said, you always have joy and you might have happiness. But there's suffering too, and it's pretty hard to find suffering in your happiness, so it can be done. Find happiness in your suffering, but it can be done. When a man strikes you with his fist or with his tongue, and you strike back, you've been defeated by him. You know, you don't think about that much, nor do I. You kind of have the last word, it feels like you won, but if you get the last word, you really lost. Ugh. At least if you're a Christian, it's true. His enmity has won the engagement, so he drew you down to his level. I once had a guy who said to me, um, he said, my spiritual gift is throwing pastors out of churches. I said, what are you, out of your mind? But I was curious, I said, how do you, how do, you do this? He said, I cause a ruckus in the church. And he said, if I can get the pastor to roll around in the mud with me, I'm one. I can go home, but they usually expel him. And then he said, nobody expects anything out of me, but they all expect something out of their pastor. I was geniusly devious. He used to keep track of the pastors that he'd run out of churches. God have mercy on his soul. When a man strikes you with his fist or with his tongue and you strike back, when you roll around in the mud with him, you've been defeated by him. His enmity has won the engagement, and enmity is double, his and yours, right? Now you're both horrible. If he strikes you and you do not retaliate, turn the other cheeks around the mount, then enmity remains single and a little discomforted. People who want to fight and you don't put up your fists, it makes them a bit... Um, uncomfortable. By refusing to be made into his enemy, there it is, Jesus has no enemy, so I have no enemies. By refusing to be made his enemy, you have taken the first step toward love's victory of cleansing his heart of malice and making him your friend. This, I'm sorry, thus sin that sets us against each other is overcome. So in your kindness, you overcome sin. Only love can overcome sin, though it often means suffering long. The overcoming of sin that divided us from God cost Calvary. Because it was love's victory, it achieves the true victory, not merely one of external appearances, which is the best that force can do. That's politics. Politics is strategy. Theology is principle. Now, of course, people at this point always say to me, then the world will be full from chaos, and can't you understand the difference between the church and the state and other blah, blah things? At times, there is nothing left for us to do but the use of force. So there is a legitimate use of force to protect your family, to protect your nation, to order the world. There are legitimate uses of force. The world doesn't run on love because the world is out here. This is the church. Out in here, love, law and gospel right. Out here, force measured when necessary. At times, there's nothing left to, do to, to us but the use of force. But when we use force, it is an acknowledgement of the failure of love. That is, love can't govern a society because hearts are hard. Consciences are unchanged. Only when love has exhausted its possibilities do we reluctantly 
resort to force. To protect, to protect against things getting worse, it can be a necessary but negative achievement. You need police and you need military and you need good government, right? This isn't, these are good things, they're not bad things, but it's always at a lesser level than heaven or love. Positive good is the work of love. All our good hangs on Jesus going to Calvary. Does no sword spell defeat? Through Lent we follow along with Jesus, his way to be our Savior. But are we following ever closer or slipping away from his way? Remember, examine yourselves to something more reliable. And of course, that's always the problem in the church. We want something reliable and certain. The law is reliable and certain. The gospel is mystical and cloudy and uncertain and unsure, and you can't tell the next step when we walk by faith and not by sight. And how does that play out in a voters' meeting? Because at some point, everybody's got to put their hand up, and that seems to be under the law, unless it's under the gospel, and you'd have to work hard to work that under the gospel. So, huh. It's 10 o'clock. I'm sure you've had enough. I won't see you next week, but the week after, you know, we'll begin with the beautiful story of the, of, uh, the prodigal son, the, the best, best story in Scripture, uh, every story in Scripture, story of resurrection, and, uh, you know, come back and have some fun. Write me if you have questions. Thanks for being brave enough to do this. It's extraordinarily helpful because then I know what you're thinking about. And you should be, these questions are um, really brilliant, except for this one about the IRS form. And so, uh, you know, keep going. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just stay right where you are for one second. There's one question I didn't answer and I want to answer it before I leave. The question is why we bow and genuflect at particular points in the service, particularly when we bow at the creed. We bow at the creed because we're so grateful that Jesus walked in the door. You notice that we bow at the point where it says, um, he took flesh from Mary, right? That we bow, and sometimes my good friend Pete Leidick um, stays bowed all the way to the place where he resurrected from the dead. It's a way of greeting the Lord, recognizing the Lord, in the same way when we genuflect. Why do we genuflect? Because as the scriptures say, every knee uh, in heaven and on earth and below the earth so heaven, earth, and hell, every knee bows at the name, uh, bends a knee, is, is bent at the name of Jesus. You say, well, they're doing it in heaven, we should do it here. Um, you know, if you're doing it in hell, we may want to qualify whether we should do it here. But in any case, all right, go in peace, serve the Lord. Be warm and be full. <laughs>